Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Mother, uh, fire up our two microphones and laptops because we're about to record a podcast. Welcome, one and all, to the podcast Be Real, where we reappraise and review movies. A lot of reappraisal happening on this week's show. My name is Chance Solom Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Buddy, how are you doing? Um, well, after having watched the three worst alien movies uh, mm-hmm. over the past week, um, pretty nauseous. Uh, sure. Anxiety is pretty high, you know. The usual things of just being me, but like only enhanced because of these gross sci-fi movies. Well, if you haven't heard our prior episode, Noah and I have certainly gone deep on Alien Covenant with the help of a couple people. And then we talked about 1979's Alien and 1986's Aliens. And uh, now we're... So if you haven't listened to this one, pause. Go back. Go back. And listen, listen to the first one first because you're going to miss all, like, we set up so many jokes in the first one that I'm going to land in this one. Oh, yeah? That's good. That's I'm good. I'm kidding. Yeah. That's never, that's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and while these movies may be worse, we would never break the bond of our covenant. We had to watch Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, and Alien vs. Predator for this, uh, this second episode. Yeah, we couldn't think of a Baywatch category, so. <laughs> Should we start with Alien 3? Is there anything you want to pick up on about these latter movies? I think we should start as abruptly as Alien 3 does. Uh, <laughs> with just you hosting the podcast and me dead in the last With just weeks. me, and then, yeah. Well, if you missed it on last week's episode, Chance is dead. <laughs> so I guess the only point I would want to make is I just want to talk about how these these later movies... It's like everyone picked something from the original, all these different filmmakers and writers, and fleshed it out in just a very exaggerated way. I would say that Cameron saw like the predicament of of war and the predicament of like this undefeatable enemy, and that's kind of aliens, and he made a great action movie. Fincher like saw the darkness, the true hopelessness, the nihilism of Alien, and was like... What if the whole world was like that? There's definitely something in here with us. We have no weapons of any kind. Let's start. It's here! So yeah, Alien 3 is David Fincher's first film. David Fincher, who of course you know from Fight Club and Seven and Benjamin Button and Social Network. And uh, it has this long, tumultuous production history and Fincher has essentially disowned this movie, which came out in 1992. He just does not consider it part of his filmography. Right. Which is like pretty ridiculous if you look at it because like it's not like an incoherent movie and it is like very Fincher-esque both in its politics and in its like conception it's true yeah there are definitely moments i would say 
you can very clearly see Fincher, but he doesn't like have the reins. There are these mm-hmm. cross edits in the movie that are like the most Fincherian thing in the world. Uh, but it doesn't have like the snap. It's not, his vision is not quite like cracking yet. Right. If they had let him shoot it like panic room or something like this would be a totally different, you know, parenthetically probably better film, but Uh this was a guy who came from like commercials and music videos. So, and this is a huge, a huge, uh, property for, for Fox. Mm -hmm. And it was also like, well, like $18 million over budget. Yeah. Back in the early nineties. Like that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. So in the studio's defense, like maybe Fincher could get it together. (laughs) Maybe, maybe he could have, but yes, it would have been with an unlimited amount of funds. Yeah, certainly it would be a better movie. Um, that is true. Uh, seemingly an unlimited number of English character actors, but oh my god! So the plot of Alien Three, we've already sort of we joked about this. We joked about this last episode. You right. gotta know that it picks up at the end of Aliens, and so Ripley is in the ship with Newt, the little kid she saved, uh, and Michael Bean. But not Michael Bean, just like. A shadow of a man that you have to assume is Michael Bean because Michael Bean threatened to sue the production if he was featured. And then a kind of broken bishop, right? And then there is a a face hugger we see in this, again, like really kind of hyper stylized, like. It's almost, you know what? You know what movie it kind of reminded me of was um, The Fugitive, the intro? Ooh! Absolutely. Where it's showing these like weird, like not very like sort of obscure shots of like something horrible happening. Yes. And in this case, it's like there's like a fire on the ship and then like the face hugger gets out and then like a big pole like just bisects uh, Michael Bean. Yeah. And Newt gets like she like drowns in some fluid or some shit. I don't know. Yeah. But. And then it's just like directed by David Fincher. And then we pick up, yeah, and Charles Dance in this like pretty epic cape is just yeah. looking at this like barren hellscape. <laughs> and like the, the ship crashes and, sh- and he stumbles upon Sigourney Weaver's body. Here's something we need to get into too, because parenthetically in the original cut of the movie, he just finds the ship and she's like, fine, but like in the pod. In the assembly like, cut. direct in the assembly cut, which is the equivalent of a director's cut, except for David Fincher wanted nothing to do with it. Right. Um, she's like all covered with grime, and he like picks her up and like has to like hose her down and then like get her into the medical bay. Yeah. Um, which I think watched, is yeah. Go ahead. We both watched the assembly cut, right? That will be our canon. Yes. Okay. Which is supposedly better and about. Maybe a half hour longer. Right? Yeah. I don't know that it's better, but it's certainly noticeably longer. <laughs> so her pod has crash landed on uh, Fiorina 161. which Fury is Fury like 161. Which is this uh, desolate planet that's like a <laughs> former penal colony. Um which basically well, has been well. So no, it was it was a former like lead smelting plant, then turned into like a labor camp. Oh yeah, f- 
then just sort of left as like these guys just like wanted to hang out there and like live their lives in peace. And the rest like, of the universe was they like were, fine. Right. Yeah, because they're like convicts and they can't go back to mainstream society. But the only thing holding them is there is fear. Yeah. But then basically this movie is sort of a very drawn out, kind of frighteningly downbeat discovery of whether this thing that you already kind of know happened like whether it happened and whether there's an alien here among all these crazy people and like there's no women on this planet and so there's always sort of like the threat of sexual violence and uh the warden of course does not believe ripley that there could be an alien or that there could be anything wrong with newt her only sort of friend is is charles dance playing the the doctor clemens who has a horrible secret of his own God, yeah, yeah. It's it's a pretty good. That's what I, the pleasures of this movie, I think, are the relationships between the characters, because yeah, the Sigourney like- Weaver Charles Dance relationship, like they've got a lot of chemistry, and I think it's the first alien and maybe only alien movie to have like a like sex insinuation. Right, right. I mean, I guess you were supposed to believe maybe that like Dallas and. Yeah. Ripley were sleeping together, but you never like there was no scene. This is a point I agree with about the relationships between the characters because this is, I this is the most actors and most acting in any of these movies. Like there's uh-huh. a lot of people giving very like committed, if sometimes indistinguishable, performances. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you you traded your Bill Paxton's for like classically trained British actors and like a very talented, if like a bit sort of precocious young auteur. Uh And what unravels is a movie that's like, I mean, it's, it reminds me more of like um, apocalypse now than aliens. And this is, this is like sort of my thing as I'm watching this movie. I mean, it's interesting, like the starting place of all these movies, because you and I come to them and we know that they were sort of critically maligned, right? Right. We kind of know that there's something wrong with all of these movies. When I watch this movie, it's I, I'm like an hour in, and it's like, well, as a piece of filmmaking, there's nothing wrong with this. It's just that there's no real sense of rising action that we've, right. we've up to this point known as essential to this franchise. Yeah. It's just sort of, um, it's almost a completely different sci-fi movie, which I almost think is good about it. Like, I think I criticized um, Covenant the most because like, it just didn't have a good first act. And this movie like definitely has a good first act. Like, then maybe it gets a little when it has to be an alien movie. I think it like it's just like well, if we make it long, <laughs> then it'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> but I think like the most work that you didn't need. There's like four like the aliens not actually dead moments at this, just like Aliens has, and that yeah. like maybe wasn't necessary for a movie that's so like emotionally and like intellectually like methodical. Yes, that's true. Um, how does how is this does the style like work for you? Because there's a lot of style. A choi- choices have been made here. I liked that it had like its moments of, like what you, we were talking about last time that you find 
grading like bad digital technology, but you'll be, you can like stand and sort of believe like gross looking like bad miniature work. Indeed. So I think this one is like sort of a perfect middle of the road where it has like some really dumb looking like satellites rotating while they're like somebody drew little black dots to show wind going by. Uh (laughs) But then it also like the creature him, uh, him or herself itself looks pretty good. Yeah. It like moves like you're used to seeing in like a modern Ridley Scott kind of movie. Yeah. There's some moments where I think it suffers from that Jurassic Park 3 thing where like they think the CGI is now good enough to show a thing like in the open when really sure. you, you should have put it like behind something a little bit. <laughs> sure. But there's also like some really good like the shots. It's a well shot movie. Like the yeah. opening thing of uh of Charles dance on the, with the code. Like that's a great sequence. It's like a steampunk oil painting as he carries her across that beam into the facility. Yeah. No, it's great. And I, I love how he sort of, so while the other movies are sort of wet, this one's kind of steamy. There's like steam Mm -hmm. coming out of everywhere. And then like, it's slowly like you can see the movie almost like condense and it goes from like hot to like sweat. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's kind of I think that's like he's good at figuring out like the little visual cues that just like let you know that like things are getting real. And the fact that this is the first movie that I think really like on the nose deals with the alien metaphor like as a religious sort of thing. Yes. For sure. Like, is, like, what role... This is the first movie that I think asks directly and specifically what role does God play in this whole thing. Right. And is there no God, or is the alien in the ceiling the God of War, or... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, and all that, I mean, the good and the bad together, it's interesting. So this movie just turned 25, right? And there were yeah. a lot of pieces uh, a couple weeks ago that were like, Alien 3! Not as bad as you remember. Maybe it's actually sort of like a fitting end to this first trilogy. Um, And whether, regardless whether I agree with that, you can see why people are willing to throw their arms around this movie now. Because, Mm -hmm. like, I think our criticisms of most, like, big, like, tentpole films are just like, you played it really safe. That was really boring. And Fincher is, is going nuts in this movie. He makes some big, big choices. They might be not the right ones, but like... Right, but at least it's fun to watch his choices. There's such an artistic commitment that you can't And miss. there's like more... There's fresh life, I think, breathed into what could have easily been like a Jurassic Park The Lost World. Or Jurassic Park um, 3. Sure. Did that one have a subtitle? No. I think it's really interesting to think with these movies about what the creators of the later ones which of the early ones was their favorite because Fincher loves alien. He mm-hmm. doesn't care for aliens and Joss Whedon really likes L- aliens, loved aliens and maybe never even saw alien. <laughs> right. Oh man. If you're used to like the gritty sort of realistic, just onslaught of gore, it's pretty boring. And, but it does have, I think it's a better drama and it's not even maybe trying to be like an action movie. It's maybe that's the difference between maybe the two sort of styles of making these movies is, is this an action movie or is this a thriller? Okay. 
Yeah. And I think that um, Scott and Fincher probably agree that they're thrillers. Yeah. But ultimately they have drama at their core, whereas Cameron and then Joss Whedon and Janae um, believe that they're just action movies. Right. But there's something admirable about the thriller approach that I think you're right. It makes sense that people are embracing this movie in retrospect. Now that said, I don't necessarily think a full reclamation is in order. I mean, I don't think we need to pretend that this movie's better than it is because like while the setting is certainly striking, a lot of the action in the latter half of this movie is so visually garbled that's like they've chosen a very interesting place to set the movie, but you don't really get where people can and can't go, where things are. That scene where they're luring it in the tunnels is unbearable in my opinion. Yeah, it was unclear like how they were the, the screen geography didn't make a lot of sense in right. the climax. And I think for the movie to really work and also just to sort of master, you know, cinema of the cinema of like a tight space, like sure. and really Scott's a master at this. Yeah. Is just like making it clear where they are and where everybody is and like where they can go. Yeah. And that's very because unclear when you're very curious where Ripley can go and where she can't go. Like, did you read some of the IMDb trivia? Like, $7 million of sets were constructed that were never used. I didn't know that. Like, this, like, crazy shit like that. But it feels like a movie where they had, like, too many sets, but, like, all of them sort of look the same. Yeah. So, and they never really go outside again. Like, that's a... The the, the Alien movies often sort of get that reprieve when they do go outside, and for a moment you, like, think it's utopia. Mm Mm-hmm. Or you think it's like something else or there's like a new mystery to uncover with like a crashed spaceship or something. But this movie never leaves the prison. That's true. Which is tough. It is a helpful reset. Even the game over man scene is kind of like, this is what the outside looks like. And it's time to reset because there's nothing out here. Sometimes you just need to like go out and have a smoke, you know, Even even in a narrative sense. There are a lot of actors in this movie to kind of bring it back around to where you started that like can really meet Ripley at a specific level where people haven't been able to meet her previously. They're always like, I don't get you lady. I don't know what you're doing, (laughs) but like she has. So it makes so much sense that she would be hopeless and borderline suicidal from having faced down this foe that Dutton's sort of like brimstony punishment is like a really good match for her to run up against. Right. I like that, too, because, like, she realizes by the end of the film, and what I love about this film, I think the most in the sort of first category that we have is the fact that it's not afraid to, like, end, you know, in a big way and not, like, keep this franchise open for more. Like, it, it takes a big risk, which we'll get into. I mean, it's not really a spoiler because there's, like, another one. Yeah. Um, Fincher which did is, like, not almost- care if Alien Resurrection was coming. Right, where they sort of exhumed the body of this dead franchise anyway. But yeah, the, I think, spoiler, that they're not afraid to kill Ripley at the end. It's like, cool. Can we turn toward a rating? Absolutely. Now, how do we rate movies on this show? Let's hear it. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. 
The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy, things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again, like watching The Departed or Jaws or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad bad is easy too, things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good Bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good Bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say... I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, Bad Good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos, it's late career Billy Joel, it's movies like Christmas Vacation... Honey? Kids? ...and Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. I think I'm going to give it a good bad, because there is stylistic merit. There is a lot of acting per capita. Um, and the fact that everyone looks the same means that they have to act pretty hard. And, you know, Pete Pastelwaith is in there. Um, sort of. And yeah, I think this is the movie asked a lot of Weaver as well. It asked her mm-hmm. to like find some new notes in this character, even though they're very sort of baritone, minor key, frightening notes. Um, yeah. But it is not watchable, and I think you would be hard pressed to argue that it is, unless you're about to. But good, bad for me. No, I think I'm on the same page as you. Um, I think like, you know, you sort of use as your uh, example for what bad good is. I think inversely, this sort of failed in such a boring way, but like beautifully. Yes, I like that. You know, it failed beautifully and watching it fail is like an experience that is maybe intellectually stimulating, but this movie's kind of boring and it's definitely too long. Mm-hmm. And somebody should have like written a real ending instead of just like watching a lot of stuff blow up in obscure like angles and praying that like we understand what the hell is going on. Sure, when uh, when human bishop comes in <laughs> and gets like his ear ripped off. Yeah, and then he's just like hanging there with like a ripped off ear, like not seeming to be that upset about it. So at this point, why don't we go to an interview I did? with a couple guests who are just like real devotees of this universe uh, and know more about it than it, more about it in a specific sort of fandom way than I would ever have thought possible. Um, Absolutely. And far more successful podcasters than us. <laughs> it's very true. So they're nice to, they're nice to give us their time. And, and I mean, I, and I will say that the reasoning that Jamie gives for his, uh, his devotion to this franchise is is really personal and and kind of moving. So so get ready for that, and then get ready to hear them uh, dig into these into these two movies. They'll talk a little bit about Resurrection, and then we'll come back and talk about it. We need to organize and send out a search party. Volunteers will be appreciated. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that. 
our smoothly running facility has suddenly developed a few problems. I can only hope we are able to all pull together over the next few days until the rescue team arrives for Lieutenant Ripley. It's here. We got Clemens. Stop this raving at once. I'm Stop telling it. you. It's here. Stay here and get that foolish woman back to the infirmary. Well, our guests today are the hosts of the podcast Perfect Organism. For 50-plus episodes, you can hear them and several other hosts and guests explore every inch of the Alien saga and universe. Well beyond the staple films, by the way, there's roundtable discussions and interviews and a boatload of thoughts on Alien Covenant, if uh, if that's your bag. Jamie Prater and Ryan Zaid, welcome to the show. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection, um, but you guys are coming the per- from the perspective of doing this podcast, which which has quite a following, but I wanted to start with sort of a broad question. I hope not too broad. Um, I think the average filmgoer might be surprised to learn about, you know, the really deep enthusiasm and, and fandom for this franchise in this universe. I mean, I think people think about Star Wars, they think about comic books, but the level of amateur scholarship and observation that goes into this franchise was amazing to me so if you can kind of step back what what draws you in enough to like make this kind of commitment what about the the universe well i think um on a primal level for me uh engaging this series as a teenager uh, an early teen a kid and then an, a teenager uh 15 16 17 um there's this there's the bare bones idea that Ripley has mm-hmm. gone through something terrible and she survived it. And then she's at a point in aliens in the beginning where no one believes her or, and so she's, she says, has this line in alien. She goes, I can see where this is going, but I'm telling you those things exist. And for me, and this is something I realized as an adult now, but as a, as a teenager, having experienced something horrible in my childhood, I was going through the same thing. Mm. Experienced something terrible and no one was believing me about it. So I met this woman who was in the same boat. So I was watching aliens over and over and over and over and over and I couldn't get enough. And I didn't know that's what I was latching onto, but that's what I was latching onto. That, that's a very amazing reason. So yeah, sort of like an underdog story against systemic kind of horror and corruption. Totally. Ryan, what about you? For me, uh, I echo a lot of what Jamie said, and um, my first experience with the series was uh, about 20 years ago. It was the first time I saw um, Aliens, and uh, I just remember just being so immersed in this this world, and also these characters that were just, they were so believable and so realistic, just so deep thematically. Like, I, I just love those thinking type of very... Um, yeah, thinking type of sci-fi films um, like 2001 A Space Odyssey or even inter- more recent Interstellar um, Arrival, things like that that just, uh, you know, I love those kind of films. And I felt like especially the first two Alien films were just, uh, there's just so much, layer, so many layers to it. And, um, and that's really, you know, what pulled me into the series. And you're talking about the fan base. We just have... You know, our fan base quantity wise obviously isn't as big as Star Wars, but quality wise, it is, you know, I feel second to none. We just have a lot of very intelligent, very passionate people in the fan base. And it's just so great getting to connect with them um, and being a part of the community. 
Um, so let's talk Alien 3. Uh, I was listening back to the podcast, the deep dive podcast that you um, did. I think, Ryan, you weren't on that one, but Jamie, you you were kind of hosting a roundtable on it. Um, and you mentioned that you you really liked Alien 3 from the jump. The sparseness and the nihilism and like the death drive of the movie appealed to you as sort of a fitting conclusion for Ripley's arc in this sort of initial um, trilogy. So... In what way did you find sort of the the very different from its predecessor's tone of that movie appropriate? Well, I have to go back again. When I Alien 3 came out, I was 16, and I was growing up in this church at the time, and the church kind of ruled the lives of all these people. It was more of a commune, and I couldn't see it at the theater. I knew people who were going to see it, but I couldn't see it. When I finally engaged that Ripley from Alien 3, I was almost... 17 or i was 17 this was the next year i watched it on video uh-huh. we rented it from blockbuster and we <laughs> then we watched it um i identified with that ripley more than i identified with anybody any other version of her just yeah. because she was at the she was uh at the end of her time in some ways she had lost everything and you could see it visually and i've discussed this before where she lost her hair mm-hmm. she lost her family she's lost everything she's you know um and so at that point in my own life as a teenager, I was going through some hard, hard shit. Um, and I had lost a lot myself. And so I could really, really identify with who she is. But that was a personal level. On a, on a, If I kind of raise it up a little bit higher, um, for me, I feel like it was a fitting end to her character. I feel like the reality of the situation is, isn't going to be, Oh, come on, Hicks and Newt, let's go kick ass again. Like that's the, this American like machismo way that people want it with the soldiers and the more Marines. And I totally get that, but that's not reality. The reality is I feel like it's more realistic that she's going to lose more. Mm hmm. Finally, she's going to sacrifice herself for the for the common good. That's a realistic ending for her character, and it's tragic. It's a hard. As much as I love Alien Three, it's my second favorite. It's hard for me to watch it because of what she goes through. Mm. Sigourney Weaver's performance might be the best of you know any of the films. Um, even though she got nominated for Aliens, I felt like Alien Three, um, especially looking back on it after all these years, was might be the, the best she ever did out of all all the films she's been in. Um, but it's just, uh, yeah, this is a really fascinating movie. And I would, you know, um, I think the first time, I, first few times I saw it was the theatrical version. Then I saw, you know, the assembly cut. And, um, you know, both of them, I just felt like, um, I felt even though there's so much studio interference, David Fincher's, you know, genius was... You know, um, you could see a little bit of that through all the interference. You guys talked in your episode about if you're willing to look for it, the level of symbolism in Alien 3 is is um, there for people who who want to do the deep dive. Um, in your viewings, what can you think of uh, an element of um, uh, symbolism or like a visual Easter egg or something that you think kind of maybe would like enrich people's viewings if if maybe they hadn't noticed it previously? Is there a favorite for you guys? Well, the one that pops out to me right away is right at the end when she's kind of falling back into the, uh, the whatever, the, the molten steel. Right. And uh, she kind of has her hands spread out, almost like a you know Christ pose. Very much. You know, it's kind of like her last last chance to just say, no, I, don't, I'm, I 
I'm not going to give in to this this company and I'm gonna, you know, end my life, you know, um, and take this creature with me into the grave. Jamie? Certainly in Alien Three, but I feel like Ripley really represents what being a whistleblower is it what being a whistleblower is. In re- real life, in the news that we see, we see time and time again these big, big corporations um, and the people who work there suffering under the weight of these corporations, suffering under decisions. Of course, they're not aliens or whatever, but they're, whether it's um, working conditions or whatever, and then the people who step up and rise up to it and the blowback that they get and the screw mm-hmm. that they're under and the fear that they feel for speaking out. Um, yeah. That is who Ripley is. That is who she embodies. So I feel like her character is more of a hero than we even imagine. Mm-hmm. Because she was the common man. She's the everyday man. And what's also interesting about Ripley, too, is um, Alien Phantom is largely a boys club. There are women, for sure, that we know. Mm -hmm. Um, You're talking hundreds of thousands of men. Um, But at the core of this is a woman leading them. And there's no discussion of her gender. There's no discussion of anything. There's complete respect for who she is. And it's very, very rare that this happens, that you have this boys club that are surrounding this, this female character because they don't see her as female. They see her as a character. So transitioning between the two movies here, I, I, maybe you guys can pull from either alien three or resurrection. One of the things about these, these latter movies is that it opens the door for character actors to give just bizarre performances um in both three and four do you guys have a favorite uh from either of those movies well three had some really i mean i think it was golic was the one that was just just so bizarre um but uh just really um i think in the assembly cut wasn't he the one that um released the uh the the xeno from and then um, Zeno right. ended up playing him, but he's the one talking about the dragon. And um... you know, Dylan would be Dylan's not my favorite. I understand why he's a lot of people's favorites because he's kind of this spiritual leader. But really, I think Clemens is one of my favorites, just because here Ripley is in this cold, dark place, and she's met with this soft, well-spoken, patient, kind man. Right. Um, and so Clemens, Clemens. I was with Clemens. Like I, I understand her, her. I understood her draw to him, her sure. emotional draw to him, her sexual draw to him. You know, she's been in this kind of man's world with these hard hitting. Oh, let's go, let's go, come on, or what are you doing? Right. To this man who's taking his time with her, and I. So I, I really, he's 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 my favorite. Also, like eighty five though too. Eighty uh, five's mm-hmm. favorite, just because you see so much of who he is. He's uh, articulated by the rest of the prisoners as this, like, oh, 85, whatever, throwing him away. But he's more than that. And he realizes, hey, I think I know you think that I'm stupid, but I'm also smart enough not to get a life sentence on this rock. That's, a, right. you know, his quote. Yeah. Um, and that uh, he felt for Ripley. But at the same time, he's like, but I got to get out of here. You yeah. Know? Um, he's very conflicted. He's conflicted. And he was beautifully, beautifully acted by... Um, was it Ralph Brown? I think it's the actor. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's right. I particularly like that what you said about Charles Dance as Clemens taking his time because through none of these movies has anyone really ever acted like patience that way because there's never been any time. Something horrible is always about to happen, but he embodies that like, we're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. We haven't for years and years. I've got time to get to know you. That's a great point. I like that. Um, Okay. And then he's taken from her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> In that 
talk about symbolism that sort of a lot the aliens attack from the ceiling quite a bit but never in that sort of like cruel god mise-en-scene kind of way as in that scene um so i i almost feel bad now making you guys talk about alien resurrection i i like talking about it (laughs) um so i wanted to pick up on a point jamie that you made in the podcast about the way the jean-pierre genet treats the aliens visually you you said he i think you said he treated them almost with like a sense of parody like he wasn't taking this seriously enough almost how did that show itself to you um just by there's that one scene where the aliens are trying to get out um trying to get out of the holding pin Mm -hmm. and so there's three aliens in there and you see him like talking they're like they start (laughs) fighting the mode in the middle and they and it just seemed comedic yeah um it just seemed like uh larry moe and curly you know um and it really it contributed to kind of demystifying them Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I like the idea that maybe they're intelligent or they hold intelligence, but let's not show it. Let's let's all of a sudden go into the cage and find them gone, but one of them's dead. And then you can sur- surmise that, hey, they figured out to get out. They needed to kill one of each other. Thinking about that is scary. Showing that was stupid. And I, I have to think that the direction is one thing, but then, you know, that the cheekiness of joss whedon and the self-awareness to what he does that kind of can contribute ryan do you pick up on the same sense of near parody yeah you know and i don't um personally really i i don't put a lot of the blame for that on jean pierre genet i just i feel like he was brought on for because he's a very visual director um very it's really um really cool style uh visually most of it i i put on the script by Joss Whedon. I just felt like it was, I think for him is almost like a, a warm up for his, uh, like Firefly series. You know, there's a lot of, I think elements of the crew that kind of transferred over to Firefly, just odd and unintentionally funny. And just, um, things that, uh, there just wasn't the right touch put onto it. I, I just don't, I don't feel like June is as much to blame as, as Joss Whedon, um, on that one. I was thinking about this in the context of, so I'm a, I would not claim to be as invested in the Jurassic Park universe as you guys are in the alien universe. But I was thinking about like the way the writing in Jurassic world and how like all, like kind of the winks, um, felt like they were for people who maybe had seen Jurassic Park in the theater and were like, I like that. I'll go back and see Jurassic World in 20 years. But if you were like really into the movies, a sequel that kind of like is constantly winking at its sequelhood is like lands particularly badly with people who are really into it. So do you think that Alien Resurrection fell on particularly sour eyes with you guys? Yeah. Resurrection did what the Star Wars prequels did. It was this constant, look, you know, this ship's called Father. You remember the other ship was called Mother? Like, like, uh, and then the whole call's an android, but we don't know it yet. Like, mm-hmm. like, but really what it gets to is it's this idea that audiences are stupid. Mm-hmm. Seriously. It's this idea that we need to, that we, it's, even as much as I love The Force Awakens, and Ryan and I have discussed this, yeah. uh, The Force Awakens I love. I think it's a great film. But at the same time, there's elements in it that say, oh, look, we need to remind the audience that there was a Death Star 40 years ago. Right. And let's give them a new one and let's have them explode. You know, it was these same kind of beats. And it's it's written by these people who I really think 
are writing down to their audience. They're not writing up. And, you know, I feel like there was this era in filmmaking where there was deep respect for its audience, deep, deep, deep respect, where audiences could watch films and um, you didn't have to tell them everything. You didn't have to wink back. You didn't have to foreshadow because we get it. Um, Whereas Alien Resurrection was all this kind of wink, winking to the past. And really, there was a lot of the issues with with Covenant, too, Mm. Um, some of the issues. Oh, I can't leave without asking you guys what you think of the... I mean, you guys know about, you're fans of the series, you know about like the creation and the progeny and the creative design of the xenomorph- xenomorphs. The part-human hybrid is just the most bizarre-looking thing to me. I mean, as someone who's a layperson, like, I couldn't look away, but I wondered what, how you guys felt about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just remember... Uh seeing that in the theater and it's like what am i watching um well and i understand what they were going for i mean originally the for the original draft that joss whedon wrote this the alien that they described was this newborn was translucent and had wings um Mm -hmm. and the description was awful it was awful um so i certainly think that the version they ended up with is a better version but it's still and part of it was um it was it was disturbing to your psyche to watch this thing with these dark black eyes like a dog um kind of coming up to ripley like its mother um it just did not seem um it seemed so out of place for the alien series very uncanny yeah yeah absolutely and uh just again i think it just kind of plays into this idea this larger it it plays into the larger scheme of, of the film of what's going on here what is this movie about? You know, um, it was, and I just, it was too much. It was just too much. I mean, again, I, I don't think the uh, design was bad. It just didn't belong in an alien film. I, I, I don't want to let you guys out of here without, let's say, 45 seconds apiece on Covenant. One of you, how about the best thing and the worst thing? So we can tease back to your many, many podcasts about this new movie. We only have two so far. Okay, but you got another one coming. We do. So what do you think? Best element, worst element? One of you pick one, one pick the other. What do you think? I will, I'll, I'll go with the best element. Um, I think the best part was the whole backburster sequence. Um, mm. When they first arrive on the planet, that was just very intense. Uh, the music was very understated, but very effective. The whole, um, the way Amy Simons, I, I believe, played that whole scene was very well done, I thought. Just very realistic reaction. Um I was I I remember when I saw it with Jamie in the theater I was like I remember just clenching my th- fists I was like this is intense and they, and they'd already showed uh, quite a bit of it during the uh, like the trailer and things like that but I still seen it in the movie altogether that was uh, very effective so very early I bet I mean I guess we can infer what Ryan thinks of the movie then <laughs> <laughs> Jamie how about you yeah, actually, it's pretty much the same set sequence. But uh, before, I, I do love the first half of the film the most. Mm-hmm. Um, my worst part of the film, my my least favorite part is Baby Groot uh, <laughs> at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alien punches through Orem magically after five five seconds and all of a sudden unfolds. And he stretches out his arms and looks like he's about to dance. Um, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, least favorite part. Well done. Uh, well, Jamie, Ryan, thank you guys so much for your time. 
Appreciate it. Absolutely. Who are you? Ripley, Ellen, Lieutenant First Class, number 36706. Ellen Ripley died 200 years ago. You're a thing, a construct. They grew you in a lab. What the hell is going on here? He is breeding an alien species. Wish you could understand what we're trying to do here. Now they brought it out of you. Thanks so much to Ryan and Jamie for their insights. On to Noah and I talking about 1997's Alien Resurrection, which, as Noah mentioned, sort of an uh, exhumation of the Ripley character who died in a giant vat of molten steel at the end of the People tell one. me that all the time. <laughs> I get that a lot. Uh-huh. Um, directed by Jean-Pierre Genet, made a number of French films, and Amelie. Including Amelie, yeah. And then, yeah, Joss Whedon of uh, Firefly, Charmed, Buffy, uh, the Avengers fame more recently as a screenwriter. No, do you want to try to synopsize this one, my friend? Sure. Okay. We cut to 200 years after the events of uh, Alien 3. We're at this, we're on this spaceship that has like this, doing some medical research in like international space. And they're... Like, they're doing something, they're cloning, they're making a baby, and then uh, they've cloned Ripley. And out of Ripley, they, like, extract... Because the reason at the end of uh, Alien 3 is she kills herself because she has, like, an alien queen inside her. So they somehow manage to, like, clone her body stuff that was, like, in the lead that she jumps into to kill herself, a la the end of Terminator 2. Um... Yeah, they like clone her, but they managed to clone her with the alien queen like still inside right. her. Mm-hmm. So they can figure out like, because they people just these corporations and companies and governments just love they love the perfect uh, perfect organism. They just love it. <laughs> they just love it. They just want it. They don't know why. They don't know what they're gonna do with it, but oh. they need it. And yes, this that is something that becomes painfully apparent in this movie is just like how stretched thin the the desire of the company and the military is. Yeah, but they just need, and it's 200 years later, and they have not learned from their history. No. Um, Aboard this ship where the, da- where the dad from Clueless is uh, letting these scientists perform horrible experiments. They need people. So that's what I'm saying, is that they need people, they need bodies to, like, host the alien. Right. They don't know, though, they could just get sheep. Why don't they know that they could just get sheeps or dogs or ox? Because Joss Whedon never watched Alien 3. That's right. Um, but yeah, so they need people. So they get these like space pirates to steal like a cryo sleep transport. And they get all these bodies. And then they like put the aliens in the bodies with the face huggers. And then the aliens hatch and they like experiment on the aliens and then they also like keep Ridley's body around for some reason because they were trying to get that thing out of her. But now she's kind of like mixed with the aliens, too. Mm-hmm. And so she's like super strong and kind of like ESP. And Well, yeah, in the cloning, she has some alien DNA and the alien has some of her DNA. So, yeah, then, of course, like for some reason, like the alien gets out because like. You know, it's like the weird turn in Jurassic Park 3 where, like, it turns out the velociraptors can speak to each other for, for this th- this flute that I, like, used a 3D printer to print. Uh-huh. 
And well, like it turns out the aliens can like growl at each other and one can, one of them can like agree to commit suicide for the betterment of the group because mm-hmm. the, cause the floor is lava because their blood is acid. Yeah. And so they escape and then like, it's sort of like the Poseidon adventure. There even is like a great swimming scene. Well said, yes. They like have to get from one side of the ship to the other with the aliens in the middle, even though they don't really explain the geography of the actual ship in a way that we'd know that. And they have to get to the Betty, which is the pirate ship, so they can get off this ship with all the aliens on it because like everybody's dead. And in the middle of all this, and yet nowhere in all this, is the Ripley clone. Right. Who seems like she's going to be the focus of this movie, and yet she sort of just like wanders around in a daze, like not helping when they most need help. Well, she only helps like when they absolutely need help. To go back to sort of the beginning of this movie, I feel like a lot of what you need to know about it is the is the opening, where it's right. sort of it takes this kind of post Burton Schumacher era '90s franchise kookiness toward the yes. approach of letting you know that this is a sequel where you see you basically you're zoomed into like a borderline microscopic level and you see something that looks like a, a xenomorph mouth and it turns out to be like a fly on the cup of a security guard right and that's really like joss whedon being like this movie is made with like the exuberance of of a fan Mm-hmm. But it's not done in earnest. You know what I mean? It's like someone yeah. who's just like, oh, I've watched that so much. I'd be happy to riff. But like, I don't actually think, I don't actually want to foreground my artistry. I agree and disagree. I think that there's interesting stuff going on on like the line level. But I think that Joss Whedon like doesn't try much. Like he knows what makes an alien movie. I don't think the director does. Um, visually, right, and then because there's some good like lines, like I the line where they like find that one remaining uh, kidnapped guy, and he's like, "What's in?" They're like the things inside. There's one of them inside him, and he says like, "What's inside me?" Like a dozen times, and then eventually it's just like, "What's in fucking inside me?" Like that's a pretty that's a good like moment. Yeah, it's a good line moment, but it's like not a great. It's not a well like laid out movie. No, no, it really sort of even structurally, but it has like some flourishes of what will make these like tongue in cheeky Marvel movies like things that everybody loves. So he's definitely taking the aliens approach, right? Which is you get kind of a bunch of in this case like smugglers instead of space marines and try to get them to have some sort of schlocky fun as they get out of this unget out of a bowl situation. But there's a requisite charm to that approach that this cast does not have. No, it's yeah, it's sort of a weirdly miscast movie. And Winona Ryder's not that great. No. And then you don't really know anybody else, and they kill off all the interesting people pretty quickly. Right. So then you're sort of stuck with... That's the big problem with this movie, too, because it... I think it has seen Alien 3 and it wanted to have the, okay, we're going to kill the love interest like halfway through. Well, we're just going to kill everyone you care about halfway through mm-hmm. and uh, see if you like that. <laughs> and that's what it does. And the answer is like, we don't love that because it's like we, we've bought into like how charming like the captain of this pirate ship is. And then he's just like dead anticlimactically. And it's like, oh, that was fun. 
Yeah. Or even like the general. Like the general should be the lead scientist that they're walking around with all the time. Yeah. There's like too it shouldn't many... be because he's like the supporting scientist. He's not even the Brad Dorif who like he's off practicing his like birth monologue, you know, so he can come back like 10 minutes before the end. Right. Uh huh. And how about how Ripley doesn't make any sense? I mean, that's the the, the probably the least uh, sort of inherently plausible thing in this movie is just that I, her consciousness doesn't make a lick of sense. The way that her sort of like her life and comes it, like, back knows to her slowly. that. Yes. And like it makes fun of it through the general being like, don't tell me like the garbage science. Well, that doesn't mean that it makes sense. It just means that you called it out that your own script doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Again, these this movie seems very of its time. Like no one would make such wild swinging mistakes if they were given this IP today. I think there's something oh, about yeah. like the po- uh, Jamie talked about the Star Wars prequels, but I think like that's an interesting point in. Uh, franchise filmmaking where like the industry was like oh the worst thing we could possibly do is for it to be stupid so we should play it really safe and play it serious which i actually think is worse i would rather watch a movie like flail well, that's what we're, that's that's the era we're in now yeah yeah you know but not back in the point. late 90s it was just like let's take the most commercially marketable things about these movies that really aren't known for that but like incidentally were that and put those on steroids and not give them a story Sometimes I think when the steroids are uh, kicking in and like rage spells, it's pretty like memorable and pretty entertaining. Like that, I really you gotta love the the face hugger ambush in the in the under the water. Like that's a pretty immaculately directed scene. And uh, frankly, oh yeah, that's a great like going from set piece to set piece kind of thing. And I do find myself sort of like perversely unable to forget like how this movie kind of plays up like the the most like titillating of body horror at the same time as it's like highlighting how vengeful this franchise has been like the the ultimate thing and i mean i guess spoilers for this movie if you want to watch it um when the you know the guy the freak out guy from seven what's in me what's in me um when he lets the thing burst through his chest into the head of the other guy like that's some real like amazing fucking fan fiction wild swinging of a way to die right and also like what do you can we talk about the death of the mutant because well, let's talk about the mutant itself because yes. i think the also the other ridiculous thing that this movie has you sort of reconcile is that somehow the the like evolution of this creature because that it's like mixed with human now through this painful brad Dorif like like epic poem that he's reciting, like while they're like sucking his man juices out or whatever through the walls Mm -hmm. is that it now gives like birth human style and needs the eggs no longer. So like the big like queen sack thing that you're used to from previous alien movies, just like produces what looks like, like a, like a, a sort of deformed shaved dog. Yeah. And with like a skeleton it, face. It has the skeleton face, but it's got these like deep set cute eyes, which yeah, but, is totally ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It doesn't make sense like in terms of evolution because like this is clearly like an inferior thing. Like it's deformed and weird and not as like 
agile and like not as like protected as like the normal alien that just come out of people. It's not the perfect organism. It doesn't feel like the perfect organism anymore. But then the death of it is just like it is so the death of it is as ugly as the thing is, it's which true. is like kind of funny. The whole movie's like kind of funny. Did you think that? I did. I I do agree with that. I mean, and I have to say that through all of the horrifying shit that happens in six, seven, whatever movies, the only time I was like, that's really fucked up was the death of the mutant. Yeah. I, it's horrible. I just couldn't believe myself. And, and then the it, it, it loves it. It loves how fucked up it's going to do this thing where it has the, audacity to like spill its intestines onto the floor just to suck them back in and out this like hole that's been created because of the suction between deep space and the spacecraft oh my god it's it's and it's so sad it's like, really this sad thing is, this thing is clearly like in a lot of pain and is suffering till its last breath when its skull like pops out and inverts and crushes in half and goes out the window with the rest of it. And has been like crying for its mom, Ripley, the whole time. Right. Because Ripley did it to it. It doesn't oh know it's God. dangerous. It's it's sort of sad. It's really But it's so funny. It's kind of like the, the violence and gore in this one is like on the level of camp is like a Shaun of the Dead. Would mm. you not agree? Sure, sure, yeah. Where it's so campy, like you said, like with the the chest burster going through the guy's head. Yeah. Like that's funny. Yeah. Like that's that's playing with your expectations, but not for like the Ridley Scott prequel like seriousness. It's playing with it to be like, like <laughs> look what I can do. So I think this movie's pretty bad. But there's something... It's certainly not good. There's something so memorable about it. Scene by scene. There's probably like seven scenes in this movie that like are impossible to forget. From intestine sucking, to basketball, to liquid nitrogen, to uh, Brad Dourif kissing. That I think lands it in bad good for me. It fails in a pretty entertaining way. Sure does. That's I think what we this judge is on here. A, a soft, very, very soft bad good. And there is something really in the same vein as Alien 3, as different as these movies are, where like there is something about how all of these movies are different that is appealing in a cinephilic sense, you know? I agree with you. Yeah. Like, if you were going to do a podcast, it might be fun to do one about this franchise. We just did. We we're doing that right now. We are? What have I said? Were my opinions good? I, I So far. Okay. Uh, we might be I about think, to disagree, though. <laughs> yeah. So moving from exhuming a franchise to just taking it out back and uh, seeing what happens. Yeah, you want to talk about the creation of a mutant. <laughs> The creation of a mutant. Well, this one is a pretty... I don't know that this one, move AVP, believes that, like, Alien Resurrection maybe is canon. I would sort of argue that Alien vs. Predator, our next film, thinks that it is closer to, like, aliens 
then it is probably to Alien Resurrection, which is kind of, it's like a charming misidentification of one's talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out in 2004. Um, came out in 2004, directed by Paul, not Thomas Anderson, but Paul W.S. Anderson. You know, he's certainly got his own visual style with movies like Event Horizon. Didn't we do that on this? No, we haven't. No, our research mission is not what it seems, I thought was Event Horizon. Mm, Sphere, Stargate, and Prometheus. Oh, well, Event Horizon is the lesser uh, addition to that genre that we've already done. Um, but he did Mortal Kombat 1 and 2, did a shit ton of uh, Resident Evil movies, uh, Death Race. Oh, yeah. This guy This guy has made some like pretty like household bad movie names. Yeah, yeah. Modern B movies. Modern B movies if you will, and he takes the idea of Alien and that world and mixes it with Predator, the another franchise that we can get into if you want. Um, I don't think I do. No, we don't what have to do watching that. this. Yeah. Well, this is not this is not canon. This is this is just fanfic. But, but what makes you think it's alien canon then? Oh, I mean, like for both, probably. Oh, okay. All right. Anyway, but yeah, it, it pushes the two together and comes up with this hokey. I think we can spoil the setup to this movie. Oh, please. Um, this hokey premise that the aliens exist as like the foe of the predators, and the predators like hunt them for sport like once every hundred years in Antarctica because that's like where they landed initially mm-hmm. and they the Aztecs and the Cambodians and the Egyptians and, and the Egyptians like built this like pyramid palace thing to like do the battle in it's a rite of passage for the predator warriors if they do it then they celebrate and go back home for 100 years and if they fail they die presumably and then they blow up the world yeah that's right and then just give it a hard reset. Even though the the pyramid still exists. Unclear. Unclear. We'll, we'll move past that. Seven days ago, one of my satellites over Antarctica discovered a pyramid. Where exactly on the ice is this? It's not on the ice. It's 2,000 feet under it. make history oh my god whoever built this pyramid believed in ritual sacrifice did you hear that and they're led by Sana Latham who can talk on her cell phone casually even when she's like hanging onto an ice cliff for dear life she's great at climbing she, rocks and she's she's great at just leading expeditions um so here's my question yes so they have the technology in this movie to discover a secret hidden pyramid 2000 feet below ice in Antarctica, but they don't have the technology to know that there's like a full town sitting like right on top of it, not covered with anything. It's a good question. They like get there. So they get to where the place is with the heat signature and the pyramid and there's like a town. There's like an abandoned whaling town there mm-hmm. that like was abandoned like since 1904, which is a hundred years earlier. And I wonder why that happened. 
Um, and then when they get there, they realize that they don't need to like do this Armageddon style drilling into the pyramid. There's already like a perfectly cut 30 degree like tunnel hole thing that leads them all the way to the front stoop of this, uh, this pyramid. This movie should, by all rights, it should be bad, right? It's designs are to be bad, at least by our system. Mm -hmm. My problem with this movie is that it's like, it's, well, it's not as like craven, uh, in terms of like, exploiting ip as you think it is it's actually like tries to have some ingenuity about how it's like putting these together um and sort of like this initial mystery that we've already kind of described when we find out like what the temple is being used for right it's interesting because this movie has clearly has like a decent amount of money to work with Mm -hmm. and it, it made the decision early on not to waste a single dime on acting or script. Right. (laughs) So like the production value is surprisingly high when you don't pay anyone anything to be in it. Yeah, it's true. And so they can pull off some pretty epic special effects here that are, I think still hold up pretty good, but it's almost like insulting how good the movie is, like how well the movie is made technically. Relative to the acting. Relative to, like, anything. Relative to, like, the story it's trying to tell, the actors on screen. Its ambitions are only for... It only wants you to think about it for approximately its length. It's true. And And it just doesn't want to offend you. Yes. And it's missing... But for me, it's missing some quintessential bad good qualities that a movie that aspires to be bad good should be. Which is, like... If the cast is not going a little bit wild, there's just there's just no one to watch here. Not even in like a like a oh who is that guy kind of way. Everyone is either just like uh, an actor from your local community playhouse or like not an actor. It's just no one's entertaining in the cast. This movie definitely could have benefited from like an Alan Tudyk kind of character actor. Well put. Um, and it tries to have it in that guy who kind of looks like the guy from Grey's Anatomy but isn't. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there's no real like goofball. Yeah. There's nothing really to like there's no there's not a lot of good hang because like nobody really knows how to hang. None of these actors know how to hang. And then there's like kind of a love story but then like that guy's dead pretty quick. No, yeah. I just I ju- it just it baffles me I hope this isn't like, you know, trying to slam the lid shut on my point too quickly, but how is the movie AVP colon Alien vs. Predator not silly? And if it's right. not silly, then what am I watching it for? I think it does have moments of like silliness. Like I think like the, like the slow motion of like the face huggers like coming after. Oh, the kung fu shot of them jumping out of the pods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think that's a pretty excellent, like, silly, like, this movie's not taking itself super seriously kind of thing, which I, I love. I think the movie thought it was being pretty cool there. And I think it was being pretty cool, but that's not silly. But cool in, like, a John Wick sort of way. Sure. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Um, which I think is like it's to its strength. Like the problem with this movie is that it's an exploitation movie of two like better franchise films. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the contrasts that's key for me too is like while we're still I think filmgoers are still sort of interested, and I think Prometheus and Alien Covenant speak to this point in like where do these fucked up creatures come from and like how do they work? I think that it's been borne out among critics and box office dollars that are predators really that interesting and predators becomes like, well, there's like five of those movies co-protagonist of this movie. I think that this movie has like one very simple goal. And once it sort of reconciles, if it reconciles that one goal, it's, it's a watchable movie. And the only goal is, well, if there's a universe where an alien exists and a predator exists, at some point, is there going to be an alien predator? And the movie does sort of pose that question in a sort of like winky, maybe we'll make more of these kind of way. And I thought that was funny. So, yeah. So I, I get what you're saying. This movie's like not good, but it like has very simple ambitions and I think this one is a better tribute to it's a better fanfic like tribute to the franchise than certainly the fourth one. Certainly Resurrection still has the tropes of an alien film, but does tries to do something new with it in a way that's totally digestible, totally easy to watch, not super long and leaves it again with that very alien. But it's not over yet. Yeah. So what what does that equal for you? That's I think quintessential bad good. Yeah, I admit it's not as bad as I thought and I admit it's imaginative, but like the problem is I don't think it has a place in a category for me because it's clearly not a first good. It lacks the quality in in writing, acting. And oh, then, sure. but then for the second good for me there's just how can you make this movie without camp and how can you make it without like a genuine like without someone's personality, without letting on some of the fun that it must have been to devise this. Right. It's I too- don't know. I think there is enough fun with like the maze and the pyramid and the things moving around and like some pretty cool deaths. To me, it has a straight face and I just don't see the point of a straight faced version of this movie. So bad, bad for me. But man, six alien movies we've watched, Noah. Very nauseous. Yeah, you know. Two upset stomachs. A dozen times you called her Ridley. Um, Tonight, too? Yeah, you did. I didn't call it out, though. (laughs) Perfect. Um, And a whole lot of fun. So, anything else to say, my friend? You know, the body count was high, but I think this is a worthwhile endeavor. Well, listeners, thanks for, you know, either enjoying or bearing with six... uh, six movies worth of commentary uh, about about these movies as they sort of descended in quality. <laughs> and uh, thanks so much to Ryan's aid and Jamie Prater from Perfect Organism Podcast for coming on. If you want to know more about the Alien Saga, rest assured, they are your guys. Um, you can find more about our podcast, Be Real at BeRealPodcast.com. We are on Twitter at BeRealPod. Be real guys at gmail.com if you'd like to send us an email and ask us questions about 
uh, I don't know, just how visceral were our reactions to seeing the mutants sucked out of the ship. <laughs> uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you find us, that's where we'll be. Just another day in the Nostromo with you, buddy. All right. I'm glad it's the two of us. Signing off. See ya.